Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. This was according to his goodwill and plan and to honor his glorious grace that he has given to us freely through the Son whom he loves. We have been ransomed through his Son's blood and we have, been, and we have forgiveness of our failures based on his overflowing grace, which he poured out over us with wisdom and understanding. God revealed his hidden design to us, which is according to his goodwill and the plan that he intended to accomplish through his son. This is what God planned for the climax of all times, to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with things on earth, and we have also received an inheritance in Christ. We were destined by the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to his design. We are called to be an honor to God's glory because we were the first to hope in Christ. You too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance, which is applied towards our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our temptation as Christians in the West is to think of praise in very shallow ways. We treat praise as an emotional state of being, a state of being that we enter into and move out of with greater speed than we put on or take off a coat on a cold winter morning. We equate praise with musical styles and happy feelings. We think of praise as an atmosphere, as a mood. Not this worship pastor, but I've had previous worship pastors that I've worked with who talked to me about, we want to create an atmosphere of praise. And I wanted to go throw up in a bucket. Because there is another story. There's another way to think about praise. One of those stories begins in the early 1400s. A Christian leader, Jan Hus, was seeking to reform the church, to move the church away from the status quo and move it towards returning to new ways in ancient practices. He wanted to return the liturgy to the language of the people. That when you came to church, you actually spoke in the language that you used every day. He wanted people to participate in the communion service, bread and cup. In the 1400s, only the priest was worthy enough to partake of the elements for the people. And 
he taught that we are made right with God through God's initiative in and by Jesus. In 1415, he was burned at the stake for those heresies, but his death gave birth to this ancient new way of being church, what today is called the Unitas uh, Fraturum, the unity of the brethren. By the 1600s, every town in the Czech province of Moravia had Christians committed to the unity of the brethren. The counter-revolution made the next hundred years difficult, but in 1722, the, the remnant of this reforming movement, now an illegal underground church, moved on to the estate of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, a pietist Christian who had also later influenced John Wesley. And so it was in this newly created village of Hernhut in August 1727, that the small body of believers, as they tell their story, quote, learned to love one another. And in the learning to love one another, they write that they experienced a movement of the Holy Spirit not unlike the day of Pentecost. They experienced that Pentecostal renewal and what we know today as the Moravian Church was born. And every modern Western expression of evangelical Christianity has the Moravian Church to thank. Small groups of Christians swayed by Moravian teaching began meeting in small groups across Europe. Moravians became, along with their Anabaptist friends, the first organized missionary movement in Europe in a thousand years. They declared the statement that many of us hold to unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, love in everything. They also began a prayer meeting in 1727, a prayer meeting that lasted continuously for over 100 years. Not, oh, they got together on the same Wednesday night, this prayer meeting met 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, for over 100 years. They prayed for John Wesley as he went out, first to the New World and then to the pulpits of England. They prayed for revival in Africa, in India, in China, the modern missionary movement that we know today would not have happened had it not been for those Moravians praying for a century. It was an uninterrupted century of praise. And that century of praise gave birth to all kinds of renewal movements across North America and Europe. We, brethren in Christ, our children of that century of praise and prayer because it was pietist missionaries who came alongside Mennonites in the Susquehanna River Valley in the 1770s, 50 years into this prayer meeting, and began to talk about the need for greater inner life, 
And these Mennonites along the Susquehanna River began to say yes to that and became known as the River Brethren, our spiritual forebearers are part of that great cloud of witnesses. That's an entirely different definition of praise. Not a mood, not an atmosphere, not a feel-good experience, but a sustained century of praying together. The text that sits before us this morning as we come to this table of thanksgiving is a long, single, uninterrupted sentence of praise in the Greek. Being speakers of English, we would not dare to have a sentence 11 verses long. That would be a run-on sentence that every English teacher in the room would give us an F for were we to turn it in on an English essay. In Lester William Faulkner. But... In the Greek, it's one long sentence. Paul begins with praise. Using his Jewish roots, he begins with, Bless the Lord. Baruch Adonai. And he moves in this long sentence. Blessing God for Christ's great work of redemption. Paul's giving thanks, praising God in the most long-winded of prayers in the New Testament. And in doing so, Paul reminds us that praise is not just an emotional state of mind brought about by how good we feel. For Paul, praise is the only viable response to God's act of redemption in and through Christ. The text defines praise as God's response as, as a response to God's actions in redeeming everything. When we see the world redeemed, when we see the world healed, when we see lives transformed, when we see creation mended, Paul praises God. Praise is not an announcement of my emotional state in response to God doing cool stuff to me. Praise is recognizing the work of God. It's seeing, seeing the handiwork of God. And Paul's praise of God unpacks in four very concrete ways about what God has been doing and acting. Verses 3 through 6, it's because God has chosen us in Christ. In verses 7 and 8, it's because God has ransomed us through Christ. In verses 9 and 10, it's because God has revealed himself in Christ. And in verses 11 through 13, it's because God has adopted us by means of Christ. Chosen, ransomed, revealed, adopted. God's actions towards us, towards all of creation, to heal that which we've broken. And all of this is demonstrated, we are told, in verse 14 by the presence of the Holy Spirit, who represents God's good faith effort in our lives. The down payment, the deposit, that demonstrates God's love for us and that invites us to therefore 
love each other. To love each other. Really the only demonstration that matters for the church. If we say God loves us and we do not love one another, we have indulged ourselves in a great adventure in missing the point. If we praise God and our spirits are moved, but we hate our brother or our sister, we've missed the point of the gospel. And Paul echoes that in this long prayer of praise. And so as we come to the Lord's table, to the Eucharist, it is both a sign and symbol that God is at work redeeming the world and redeeming the world, not in judgment, but in love. The bread and the cup, this memorial meal, invites us to consider the possibility that fulfillment in life, that real life happens, happens around the intimacy symbolized by dinner table. It happens in fellowship with God and in loving one another. All that is truly important and therefore all that is praiseworthy is bound up in these elements. In this bread and this cup, we remember that God has chosen us, forgiven us, revealed himself to us, and adopts us. God does that through and in and because of Jesus Christ. And so we praise our God and we remember Jesus in this meal. And we know that God is giving us the deposit of his spirit, the deposit of an inheritance of redemption, not wrath. It's this realization that preserves faith during 300 years cycles of persecution and renewal. It's this kind of faith that leads not to 20-minute prayer meetings, but to century-long prayer meetings. We praise God not because we are worthy or because we feel good about it. We praise God because we know God is doing a new thing. God is welcoming the world that we broke, that Jesus repaired on the cross. And he's welcoming that not through our mood or our theology. He's welcoming it through our love for one another. There is only one statistic that matters on the dashboard of the Christian life. Do we love one another? It is the easiest thing to say and the hardest thing to do. Because love grows stale and sometimes conflict rears its ugly head. Sometimes we are just 
frankly, too bored with each other to love each other. And sometimes we are challenged. But the call of the gospel, Paul's great word of praise, is that God's redemptive purposes are demonstrated to the world when this improbable, impossible, crazy collection of people love each other. We keep saying that the church in the West needs to do great things. The only thing we need to do is the church of Jesus Christ is to love one another. Everything else will get taken care of if we do that. And so when we worry about theology, when we worry about practice, when we worry about our differences instead of God's act of loving us, we miss the point. And so the, the table of the Lord reminds us that all that Jesus asks us to do is to love one another. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed by the folks he had loved the most, he, he took bread and, and he broke it. And he said, my body is broken for you. My life's given over to you. I am broken apart because of you and for you. So take this meal, this bread, and eat it often. Remember this. Remember that I am broken because of you. Now, did Jesus do that because he wanted to rub it in our faces that we're losers? That, that we took the Son of God and nailed him to a cross? Was it, was it just, you know, Jesus being snarky? Or do we remember when we break this bread that our ultimate aspiration as Christians is to love God and to love one another as Christ loved us? Jesus took the cup he said, this cup is the symbol of the new covenant poured out for you. My blood offered for you. Drink it often. Remember me. Not in a penitential way of, oh, we were terrible. We nailed Jesus to the cross, or somebody did, and they should pay for it. But we remember that in Jesus' sacrifice, that this is love. That he gave his life willingly, freely for us.